All right, we started a year ago, um, almost literally to the weekend. And um, last uh, year, the, one of the very first things uh, that I shared with you, as I look back through my notes, uh, this is uh, message number 41, I think, uh, in this book. Uh, so as I look back through my notes from message one, uh, this is one of the things that I shared with you. The point of Romans is not so much to create a really smart people who are great at Bible jeopardy. Rather, the point is to create a community of men and women who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus. So that was one of the very first things that I shared with you is this is a very heavy book, intense book, phenomenal book, challenging book. But the point of Romans was not that we would just know a bunch of information uh, about God and we could impress our friends with all that we know. But the point of Romans is that all that we know, all that's been revealed, would be transforming who we are and how we live. My follow-up question a year ago to you was, is there any one of us who a year from now, which is today, from now would not want the relationship with God, the relationship with themselves, meaning how you understand and how you view yourself, your relationship with the community, meaning the church, and your relationship with just the culture, people around you. Is there any one of us who would not want those four relationships to see some form of transformation over the past year? That was a question I asked you a year ago. And really at the heart of that question is, it's, do you want to grow? Do you want to mature? Where you were last year at this time, do you want to be in a different place as it relates to God, as it relates to relationships that you have with people in the church as well as people outside the church? Uh, it's safe to say that none of us are content to live a complacent life or to live life in neutral, not really going anywhere. Uh, so a year ago, the question was, do you want to see just transformation in your life uh, over this, this, this past year or this coming year? So before I jump into the final few verses in Romans, I want us to reflect a little bit, specifically what has the last year looked like for you? Uh, now, I realize not everyone was here in Genesis for message number one a year ago, and that's okay, but just reflect where you were a year ago. And I'm not thinking geographically uh, speaking, spiritually speaking. Where were you a year ago today um, as it relates to your relationship with God, as it relates to how you understand yourself and uh, community relationships and such? So look backwards just briefly, and the question I want to just ask is, has there been change? Has there been transformation? Has there been growth? Has there been forward progress? Has there been movement as it relates to relationship with God, with, with self, with others? Uh, has there been much change or transformation? Now, I think our natural tendency is, okay, that's a fair question to ask, and to answer that, we start looking back at all the things that we've done, and we start looking at maybe all the things that were done to us or around us, or we start looking or considering all the things that we didn't do to try to come up with an answer. So if you're trying to you know, think through, well, I didn't do this, or I did this, and I didn't do this, Romans was not about that. And so what I want you to think about is as you consider all that Jesus has done, as you consider all that God has done, has it 
is what Jesus has done, is it bringing change or transformation in how you live? Simply put, is, is Jesus making a difference in your life? Not what you do or haven't done or might do, but is what Jesus has already done, already completely accomplished, is that making a difference in your life? Now, real quick, I'll say for all of us, the fact that you're here in this place today is evidence of just the grace of God at work in your life. And I say that simply because you decided to wake up this morning on uh, Labor Day weekend when you could have been in a million different places and you wanted to come to a service where you knew there would be worship through song. You knew there would be worship through preaching of scripture. You knew there would be communion. You knew you made the decision to come to church. And the fact that you even were able to decide to say, I want to be in this place this morning is evidence of the grace of God at work in your life because none of us could desire those things on our own. So I would be encouraged that you're just here, that you're here in this place. Now, some of you just may have gotten dragged along and you just, I don't know, you thought you were going to breakfast and you found yourself in a, in a refurbished gym. But I'm encouraged that you're here. To me, that's, that's just grace. The fact that you're sitting here is grace. And now a second thing I'd encourage you with is the fact that you're still alive. That's good news for you. The fact that you're still alive is evidence that God's just not done with you, that God is still at work in your life. So the fact that you have breath in your lungs is God's message to say, I'm, I'm, I'm still at work in your life. Our walk with God, our relationship with God is, is not so much about this arrival point. Did I get to this point? It's about all that God's doing in our midst along the journey. So let me ask the question one more time. As you reflect on all that Jesus has done, as you look backwards over this past year, do you see the gospel has been at work in your life? Now, I know for some, this is a question that might potentially lead you to despair because you're like, no, I look like the same guy, the same woman that I did a year ago. See, this is, religion would lead you to despair. Because religion is about performance, it's about observance of rules and regulations, which we can't meet, meet up to those, so it leads us to despair. But what the gospel does is the gospel is always working in us, and when the gospel is at work in us, it leads to, to joy, to contentment, to peace. It leads us to mission, ultimately it leads to transformation. Has the gospel been at work in your life? That was my heart for me, that was my heart for this church, that a year in, after our study, after our study of Romans, is that we would be able to say, I haven't arrived, I've not been, I'm not perfect, far from it, but I see grace in my life. I see that I'm still thinking about God. I still see that I'm, my desires have grown to love God. Now I can say, at least from the chair that I sit in, uh, our church is far from perfect. I would be the first one to admit that and confess that we are far from a perfect church. But what I've seen and what I would observe in our church is that we've grown in our love for Jesus, is that we've grown in our love for one another, and that we've grown in our love for those who don't know who God is, who don't know who Jesus is. We've not arrived, but we've grown. And I would say the grace of God 
The gospel is at work in this place. Because if it wasn't, we would just be the most selfish, sinful, self-centered people. And I see people, grace-changing people. So I'm pretty encouraged from our journey as a whole, from what God's done with us in this church. And I hope this question is not leading you to frustration or despair, but leading you to say, you know, I'm not there, but I have seen grace at work in my life. Now, as we finish Romans, uh, many you know, church historians and theologians and scholars would agree that this is Paul's, like this is his magnum opus, this letter. It's certainly his longest, most robust letter, uh, but it is his, a clear articulation of what it means to be a Christian, of who God is and what God has done. And this is such a significant letter uh, throughout church history. I, I read this quote to you on day one of Romans, and it was a quote from Martin Luther. He said this, this epistle, <coughs> this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It's been, for me personally, a phenomenal book. I'd love to sit here and tell you I memorized the whole thing. I didn't. But I love spending time in Romans every day. It was absolutely great. And if this is true, which I think it is, what Martin Luther is saying and what the significance of Paul's letter to the church in Rome, one good question to ask is, how is he going to end this thing? Like, how do you end a letter like Romans? How, what, what do you go out with? Like, what's your final words? Like, if you've been tracking through Romans at all, Paul has brilliantly walked through the Christian faith. So if you were to look at Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3, Paul articulates Man is really sinful, and because man is sinful, man is separated from God, not only separated from God, but the full weight of God's wrath is on man. And so man is in an incredible predicament, and that's what Paul teaches in Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3. In chapter, towards the end of chapter 3 and into chapter 4, Paul teaches that God has changed the predicament of man meaning God has offered sinful people salvation. Unrighteous people, God has made a way for unrighteous people to become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 5, uh, Paul articulates what that all means of a life in Christ means I'm, I'm forgiven, I'm loved, I'm grace, I have peace with God. It talks about this new relationship that I have with God, once an enemy, far from God, but now I have peace with God because of Jesus. In Romans 6, 7, in chapter 8, it talks about what God begins to do in our life to make us look more and more like Jesus as we grow. It talks about what grace does to transform us. In chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul articulates that God has been working salvation in history from the beginning of time, and he walks all the way back in chapter 9 through chapter 11 of how God has been at work in history, first with the Jews, but now has made salvation possible to the Gentiles, meaning us, people who are not Jewish. And then in chapter 12, 13, 14, and 15, Paul says, because of Jesus, this is what life should now look like, of how you should relate with one another, what healthy relationships look like, what healthy community looks like. 
Now, you're in Romans 16. And so Romans 16, if, if you read it, it's got a laundry list of names, about 27 different names. And towards the end of Romans 16, what we're going to look at here in a second is a couple prayers. Uh, Paul gives a charge, but he also gives just some prayers. Now, my question is, why would Paul end this phenomenal letter as he does? There's got to be some, some intentionality there. And what I love about how Paul closes out this gospel, the, Paul's letter to the church in Rome, is he brings it full circle. If you remember Romans chapter 1, he just expresses his love for God, his desire to glorify God, and he expresses his love for a community that he's never even visited. And so as he closes out Romans 16, he brings it back full circle and says, I want, because I love you, I want to warn you of something that could destroy this, which is really crucial for where we are as a church. We're two years old as a church. We just celebrated our second anniversary on September 1st. I mean, that's worth something, right? Clap, anyone? To me, it's pretty exciting. Two years that we've been able to gather as a community and two years to see what God has been doing in our midst. And so Paul gives us some instruction of something that could destroy what God is doing in our midst. And I'll first look at that. This is Romans 16, verse 17 through 20. He says, I urge you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions or put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk, flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. This is now towards the very end of Romans, the whole letter. And so there's got to be something significant happening where Paul literally says, I urge you. Now, Paul's only used this word three times, and this is now the third time. The first one is, I urge you to offer your lives as living sacrifices. That was Romans 12. He said, I urge you to pray for me as I desire to take the gospel to Spain. And now he's saying, I urge you to watch out for those who cause division. This is not a command. This is a strong appeal to pay attention, to be on guard against. I'm urging you to watch out for those who cause divisions. Now, it's safe to say, some of you, this is the very first church you've ever been part of. But for some of us, this is one of many churches that we've been part of. And for those of you who fit that, have you ever been part of a church where it was a church that was just riddled with division? I've seen that before. And if you have ever lived or experienced a church that was divided, it is a painful experience. It is a painful experience to be living in part of a divided community. And Paul's heart for the church in Rome is that they would not be a divided community, but that they would be one. They would have unity with one another. And if you're going to have unity, Paul's message is pretty clear. I urge you to watch out for the troublemakers. Look out for the people who want to destroy unity. Look out for people who just want to serve their own interests, serve their own appetites. 
push forward their own agenda, do their own thing at the sake of others, and thus cause division. <coughs> Excuse me. Paul's specific warning, be on guard against troublemakers, be on guard against people who hinder spiritual growth, meaning people who, by either word or deed, set an example that is contrary to what the Bible teaches, to what the gospel teaches, and ultimately could lead you astray. Paul says, be on guard against selfish people, people who are bent on serving themselves at the cost of hurting others. And Paul says, be on guard against smooth talkers, people who love to use flattery. They sound great. They say really good things to you. But Paul says, be on guard against smooth talkers. (coughs) because they could be leading you astray. Zach, can you get me some water, please? Bottom line uh, for Paul is watch out and stay away from people such as these. Now, the reality is divisive people uh, are at times pretty difficult to identify because they're actually masters of stealth. It's not like they go around with a, a cool shirt on that says, I'm the divisive one, you want to be my friend. It's not like they're promoting themselves and <clears throat> causing you know, these problems. They do it in a very sneaky way. They do it in side backroom conversations. They do it by whispering. So, <coughs> excuse me. Thank you, Zach. So, We need to be on guard because they're not necessarily promoting themselves as divisive, selfish people. So we need to be watching out for those who are seeking to ultimately divide the community. Now, as I just mentioned, Genesis is now two years old. And I'm pretty encouraged that in two years, uh, and I've seen this happen before, really young churches typically don't make it past the two-year mark because there's just so much division in the community. There's so many people in new churches who just want to do their own thing and press their own agendas that it ultimately divides the community, and the community doesn't survive. Now, I'm pretty excited that in two years, Genesis, God, by his grace, has protected us from any such division. In two years, we've not had to wrestle with people trying to be divisive and people trying to just cause commotion uh, or division in the community. That's evidence of God's grace, but one of the things of why I think that we've been spared of that for the first two years of our church is, and I want you to know this as a church, one of the things is that we take leadership here at our church very seriously. Divisive people, controversial people, selfish people will always try to get themselves in positions of leadership because the greater the influence you have, the more opportunity you have to wreak havoc. And so one of the things that Genesis is, we've set the bar really high as it relates to leadership, not wanting to make it difficult on people, but we want to make sure, this was the advice that someone gave me before Genesis planted as a church. If you guard the gate of leadership, beginning with elders, there will be layer upon layer of protection against division in the community. If you take leadership seriously in the community, and so Paul and Jeremy, they're now elders at Genesis, but they were not rubber stamped as elders of Genesis when we started because they could spell Jesus. It wasn't that simple. They went through an 18-month discernment process to really examine their call, to really examine their character. 
And after 18 months, these men are not perfect, but their character is consistent with their call. How can I say that? Well, there's a lot you learn about someone in watching how they live and watching their marriage and watching their family and watching how they relate with the community and operate within the community. Time has a way of revealing a lot about someone's character. And these men went through a lot of study, a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment. One of the things that we worked really hard on was that to be an elder, we needed to have unity across the board. And there were five aspects of unity that we worked towards as elders, that we would have theological unity, that as it relates to some major doctrines, that we were completely unified, that we would have missional unity, that we were all committed to the same mission of what God had called us to. We had philosophical unity of how we operate, kind of the Genesis way, that we were unified in, in how we do that, that we would have organizational unity and how we've structured as elders and then we have deacons and ministry team leaders and community group leaders. And then lastly, that we'd have relational unity, that we actually liked each other. So it took 18 months to make sure that we had unity across the board. And what was great if you were here last March is you guys confirmed these men's call to serve as elders of the church. I'd never seen it before, but there was about a 98% affirmation that these men should serve as elders of Genesis. So we take leadership very seriously. The deacons, they're not even done. We just crossed the two-year barrier of a process to become a deacon at Genesis. Community group leaders, you can't be a community group leader until you've been in a community group. Why? Well, there's a lot of people who just want the title of community group leader, so they get themselves in a community, or they want to lead a community group, ultimately, so they can do their own thing. And we don't allow that. You, we'd love you to serve as a community group leader, but be in one first. See how you work within the community. See how you love and how you encourage and how you invest. We require community group leaders to go through lots of training, because you can tell a lot by someone when they go through training. Are they teachable? Are they just disagreeable? Because if they're just fighting on every single point, that's telling of what their leadership is going to look like. My point in sharing all of that with you is pretty simple. We take leadership very seriously because we know that if there's leadership that is unified, that is healthy, it is going to guard and protect, protect against a church that would be divided. Now, some of you just went through the church membership process. Some people would say that it's a bit intense. It's a 100-page manual you got to read. There's five separate classes that you have to come to. Now, I don't think, and to be honest with you, it's necessarily that difficult or the bar is set so high. We certainly want members of this church to know who we are, what we believe, why we believe it. That's important. But I think more than anything, there's a high standard for members of Genesis, meaning we ask them to make a five-fold commitment to the church, that I will be a follower of Jesus. I will grow in my relationship with Jesus. I will connect within this community. I won't be a lone ranger doing my own thing. I will connect in community. I'm committed to that. I'm committed to serving. God's given you gifts. I'm committed to sharing those gifts with the community. There, there's a commitment to giving, whether it's financial giving or whether it's giving of, of time, talents, that kind of thing. Uh, and then the last one is I'm committed to the mission of Genesis. I'm committed not to making my own mission, 
but I'm committed to the mission that God's entrusted this church with. So we take membership, we take leadership very seriously because we want to protect against the very thing that Paul is talking about, a church that would be divided. Now, we can do things as members and as leaders, but I wanted to share with you pretty briefly from these verses uh, some things that all of us can do. It doesn't matter whether you have a title of leader or not. These are things that we can all do that would protect unity in the community. And the first one is remain rooted in sound doctrine. What you believe about God will shape how you live, every aspect of your life. What you believe about God will influence, will shape how you relate with God, how you relate with others. And so if you have doctrine that is just not biblical, you're believing things that are not true, everything will be off. And not only that, when someone comes in and is trying to lead you astray because you don't have a commitment to sound doctrine, you'd be easily led astray. I like how Timothy or Paul says to Timothy in, in uh, his letter, uh, 1 Timothy 4, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So one way we all can work towards unity is remain rooted in sound doctrine. Number two is, I'll just say it like this, keep away. There are going to be people who want to just be divisive, and they're going to try to draw you into conversation, backroom meetings, whispers. Walk away. Keep away from things like that. It's really hard to have a a one-way conversation. So if someone is literally gossiping or just saying divisive things, Uh, whether it's against a leader, another person in the church, whoever, have the courage to just, I'm not going to put up with that. I walk away from that. Paul says, stay away from that. Thirdly, be obedient to God in all things, at all times, in all places. Obedience, when you're obedient, and it protects the unity of the church. But when obedience just becomes an optional thing for you, Quick to follow when obedience is optional will be division in the church. Well, I don't have to do that. That's more of a suggestion. That's not an actual command from God. So if obedience is a commitment of ours, it protects unity. Can you imagine how encouraged the church in Rome was to hear from Paul, everyone has heard about your obedience. I am full of joy over you. It's full of joy. The world where Paul was had heard Man, the church in Rome is killing it with their obedience. Fourthly, be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. Meaning we're called to have a childlike faith, but not be childish in our faith. Does that make sense? Be childlike, but don't act like a child. Another way to understand this proverb, as it were, of being um, wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil is there should be no divide or divorce or break from what you believe and how you live. Meaning how you live should match up with what you believe and what you believe should be showing up in how you live. Paul had to write Titus and warn him of this was not happening in his church. And in Titus chapter uh, 1, verse 16, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for doing anything good. It's pretty strong language. Point is simple. Be wise 
uh, in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And fifthly, the last one, remember the truth that in Christ, you're on the winning team. I love how Paul says the God of peace is going to crush the enemy, is going to crush Satan under your feet. So if you are with Christ, you are on the winning team. The one who seeks to cause division across God's family is being destroyed, will be crushed, as Paul says, uh, under our feet. Now, those are some things that we can do to help build unity, cultivate unity, promote unity in this community. But what happens when we don't do those things? What happens when we're not fighting for sound doctrine? We're not fighting to be obedient. Well, I'll give you two quick things. A lot of people get hurt. I've seen a lot of people get jaded towards God, get jaded towards the church because the church was just misbehaving. The church was just being selfish. The church was not protecting its unity. And then secondly, I think a huge consequence of it hinders our witness as a community. I can't imagine what the message really looks like to someone who's a non-Christian if they look into inside the church and be like, man, you guys just bicker about everything. You just constantly are fighting and squabbling and gossiping and just tearing each other down, always fighting over stuff. Why would I want to be part of that community? I get enough of that in the world. Why would I want to step into that? I like how this Puritan uh, pastor said it, divisions in the church always breed atheism in the world. It's a pretty humbling thing to realize that what we do in here is going to either spur people on towards God or it's going to potentially lead people to become very jaded towards God. I love this is a prayer that Jesus prayed for you, for me, in John 17. He said, My prayer is not only for them alone, meaning the disciples, but I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may, be, may believe that you have sent me. See, what's at stake here is not just our unity, but the message that's coming forth. If we protect our unity, and Paul is urging the church in Rome, be on guard against those who would cause divisions. The message that would go forth from us, from Genesis, that the, the world would believe, they would look in and see, I see God at work in their midst. I see people getting changed. I see people being generous and gracious and kind and compassionate, not bickering and being selfish and fighting and squabbling. I want to be part of that community because I don't see that anywhere else. So I was thinking about Paul's ending to Rome, uh, Romans. I just found it intriguing that this was the last thing he urges the church to do, is to be on guard against those who would seek to divide destroy the church. But to me, it communicates Paul had a huge heart for the community in Rome. And I personally have a huge heart for this community here. And I just, as we would finish Romans, I hope and I would pray that along with me, along with our leaders, elders and deacons and community group and ministry, as we would fight for having unity in our midst. We would fight to encourage one another and serve one another, not be selfish and self-centered, being divisive. 
Now, before Paul closes out Romans, I don't know if this is what this exactly looked like, but he had some friends that were sitting around him, and uh, they get some shout-outs, as it were, in Romans 16. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as does Lucius, Jason, uh, Sospater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Eratus, Eratus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus sends you their greetings. Just imagine all these people are sitting around Paul as he's getting ready to end, and he's like, guys, I'm done. No, 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 please. We want to get our names in there. Tell them we said hello. We send our greetings. Now, what I love about just this quick snapshot is I'm really thankful that the Apostle Paul, he didn't go it alone. Just say it that simply. Just, I love that he's surrounded by a community of people that he's loving and serving and equipping and challenging and partnering with in ministry. It's just one more picture that Paul was not a lone ranger. He just didn't do it by himself. You would think he probably could. He's Apostle Paul. But he, he, he didn't see view himself like that. He viewed himself as, I want to surround myself with other people. Now, the final three verses in Romans. I love how Paul closes. He gives full attention to giving God glory. It's an amazing prayer, a benediction of Paul pointing all back to God. And he says this in his closing prayer in Romans. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. And thus ends Romans. Now I, I just wonder as Paul knew that this was it, this incredible letter that was about to be sent to the church in Rome, knowing that he wants to close with a prayer of pointing people back to God. I just wonder if in that moment of reflection, as Paul was, began to consider, man, let me just let my mind think through all the things that God has done, all the things who God is. It's God who established me. It wasn't me. It wasn't my best effort. It wasn't my performance. It was actually God who has established me, God alone. And he says, I've been established by the gospel. And this is my gospel. I love how Paul says it's my gospel. It's not the gospel that he authored, but it's the gospel that he owned. It's the gospel that owned him. He was proud to align himself and say, this is my gospel. This is what I believe. And it's this gospel that's been revealed to me that is actually God uses the gospel to establish me. And I love how Paul says, and all of this, which once was, once was a mystery, God's chosen now to reveal it in Jesus. And he says it's a mystery that's been revealed to all people. Did you catch that in the prayer? That all people would believe, that all people would come to faith, and that they would be obedient. Now, I imagine as the final sentence is penned, of all the characteristics that Paul could have said about God, of all the attributes of God, the last thing that he says, to the only wise 
God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. I just think as Paul considered all of that he had written, man, God is a wise God. Humanity separated from him. And in the wisdom of God, God reveals a way for humanity to become righteous. Not through rules and performance, but through his son. Man, God is a wise God of how he has just worked this out through human history. Have you ever been enamored by the wisdom of God? I think some of us don't pray, God, how wise you are, because we look at our lives and it looks like chaos and confusion. So clearly, because I have chaos and confusion, God's lacking in wisdom. But for Paul, as he closes, to the only God who is wise, absolutely wise. Now, we finish with Romans. My heart for us, as we would close, is this prayer is not something that we would just pray, and I would encourage us to pray this, but this would be a prayer that we actually practice that this is a prayer that we live out. This whole letter is a letter that we live out, but I see in this prayer a few things of how we put this prayer into practice. Number one, I'll just give you these very quickly. We'd be free from striving and performing in hopes to establish ourselves before God by our good works and rather allow God to be the one who establishes us. Be free from trying to perform for God. Be free from thinking that your performance somehow makes God love you more. And be free from thinking that somehow your poor performance makes God love you less. There is only one who establishes you, and it's God. So be free, completely free, from striving and performing from a God who just loves you as you are, where you are, and it's He who establishes you. Number two is that we would be convinced and not ashamed of the gospel. If you're going to practice this prayer, Paul says, this is my gospel. This is not just a good idea or a good way to live. This is my gospel. It owns me. I own it. We are uniquely married. This is my gospel that I'm committed to. I'm convinced of. You go back to Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Be free from striving, performing, that we'd be convinced and not ashamed of the gospel. Number three, we'd be committed to the mission of God. You saw in the very last verses of Romans, God's desire is that all would come to believe and that all would be obedient. I am firmly convinced that God wants to use you. God wants to use this church to introduce a mess of people who currently don't know him to begin a relationship with him. That we as a church would be committed to reaching all people, no matter what their background is, no matter where they've come from, no matter what they've done, no matter how messy it may get, that we as a church would be committed to the mission of God, that we would be committed to practicing this prayer that God would use us, that God would use this church to reach a lot of people that they too would believe in Jesus and that they would be obedient. Fourthly and lastly, 
that we'd give all glory to God at all times, in all places, no matter what your life looks like. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus. That you would be absolutely, just give glory to God in all things. Even if stuff is a mess, God, I still give you glory in this broken relationship. God, I still give you glory despite my confusion. God, I still give you glory despite my brokenness because I know that you are a gracious, a merciful, and kind God who is at work in my life transforming me by your gospel. And because of that, I give you glory. Not because my situation is really good, not because I'm killing it in the workplace or my finances are just off the charts. I don't give you glory just situationally. I give you glory in all things, in all times, in all places. Why? Because you're worthy. As we put this prayer into practice, that's the transformed life. I'd love to, if you could, paint a picture of where do you want to be a year from now? What do you want your walk with God? What do you want your relationship with God? What do you want your relationship with others, this church, with people who don't know God? Where do you want to be a year from now? And as you would put this prayer into practice, allowing the gospel just to continue to transform you, just watch what God does in your life. Growing in your love for Him, growing in your love for the people around you, growing in your love for those who don't know God. I would love on our third anniversary for our testimony to be, my goodness, I cannot believe by the grace of God what he's done in my life, what he's done in this church. Wouldn't it be amazing at next year's Get Drenched service if there was like 50 people in the ocean getting baptized? Wouldn't it be amazing if there was like 100 people who were getting baptized? Why? Because God used you, God used us, this church, to draw people to himself. Why? Because we were unified. We weren't fighting and bickering and going at each other. We were loving each other, serving each other, dying to our preferences and our own agendas so that God could work in our midst. Wouldn't that be amazing? See, I, don't, I think that's a small request of God. I think God's like, well, can't you think bigger than 100 people? Why not ask for a thousand new lives changed and transformed? Don't we think that God, the only wise God, could do that? I do. I'm excited for the dozen so people getting baptized next week because it's just an evidence of God's at work in this place. He's at work in people's lives. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday. This is not just a cool service on the beach. This is Oh my goodness, people's lives are getting changed. They're going to stand in the freezing cold ocean with eight-foot waves crashing just to testify that they love Jesus. That's awesome. It has been a great uh, journey through Romans. I thank you for uh, going with on this journey for this past year. Uh, I know it seems like a really long sermon series, but... Uh, I hope that you've been blessed. I hope that you've been encouraged, not by a sermon series, but by the gospel and the grace of God at work in our midst. As we close, I would ask, 
where are you right now in relationship to Jesus? If you're in this place and you have not begun a relationship with God, do that today. I would just urge you to make that decision to begin a relationship with Jesus. If your relationship with God is based on works and your performance, that's not a relationship with God. That's a relationship with religion. If you are not a Christian, meaning you've placed your faith in Jesus, I would implore you to do that today. As we close out this phenomenal book that's all about the gospel, if you've not received the gospel, do it today. Confess, God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. And I invite Jesus to be the Savior of my soul. Begin, Jesus, to do a work in me that I couldn't even possibly imagine. If you're a Christian, but somehow along your journey, you've just lost your way, my invitation to you would not be to recommit yourself to Jesus. It would be to repent of making life about you and you at the center and saying, Jesus, would you establish me? Jesus, I confess that I've just gone off and done my own thing. I repent of that. Would you establish me in my walk, my relationship with you? And for those of you who are, are growing in grace, would you just spend a few minutes praying and saying, God, thanks for grace in my life? Because the only fact, the only reason you're growing is because God's been gracious to you. So just say thank you, Jesus, for your grace in my life.